When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Just before coming down here, I was taking notes on a from a biography of Picasso, and I came across two passages that are worth reading in connection to what I'll continue to say about Walt Whitman. And it has to do with the the period of time when uh, in 1907 and the months preceding and the years after, uh, during which Picasso was working on the famous Demoiselle d'Avignon, and this is what it has to say. By the end of the summer of 1907, Picasso had set the painting aside, this time for good. It would not be exhibited until 1916, and it would not be recognized as a great revolutionary achievement until André Breton published it in the early 1920s. And on the very next page it says, Besides exhaustion, Picasso suffered from a terrible spiritual isolation. There was nobody with whom he could share the exaltation and anguish of being way ahead of his time. And let's see, about ten pages later, Uh, it says uh, Picasso told one of his friends of the quote unbelievable solitude end quote to which artists are condemned when they break new ground a solitude that can be both a blessing and curse is there anything more dangerous than sympathetic understanding he asked someone else especially as it does not actually exist. It's almost always wrong. You think you aren't alone, and really you're more alone than you were before. And this is coming from uh, certainly not the Picasso of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, uh, and into his old age, but certainly the Picasso of 1907-ish, leading up to his uh, uh, discovery, if you want to call it that, of Cubism. Certainly not an unknown character. Certainly not someone without fame or infamy even then. Uh, Or with a large band of friends, many of them fellow artists, 
and certainly not without uh, art dealers who were ready to sell his paintings and help him get a living. Uh, there's a wonderful quote from James Joyce, actually a very sad quote from James Joyce, but an illuminating one about the difference between uh, writing and painting uh, from the 1920s in which the old, not old, uh, middle-aged, I'm now middle-aged, uh, uh, the middle-aged and mostly penniless James Joyce, who has to live uh, from the um, from the donations of benefactors, and never comes out well in, in how he seemed to abuse that relationship. Um, and he's blind, going blind, always has eye troubles, and he's sort of... Uh, living in Paris with his wife and his family, and he is having had just published Ulysses, I believe, at this time, and he's dealing with the censors and correcting the editions of Ulysses to bring out a new, uh, a new version of the book. Uh, the book is banned in England, the book is banned in the United States, and shipments of the book are, uh, to those countries, are taken and burnt, etc., etc. Uh, he is more infamy than, than he is taken seriously. And now he starts work on this book that will eventually be called Finnegan's Wake, which people really have, if they had no idea what to make of Ulysses, they have uh, even less of an idea what to make of Finnegan's Wake. And at one point, Joyce sort of mourns for himself and says, uh, you know, somebody like Picasso can spend a day, maybe two or three, painting a picture and make more money than I will make in a year, two years, three years. And if you take the the money that he was being given by his benefactors, uh, uh, it's probably more money than Joyce would have ever had in his entire life. This is all just to say that there is true uh, creative isolation, where a writer or a painter or whoever you can think of, a podcaster now, a poet, um, truly has no one that he can uh, even see around him and recognize himself in, doesn't even have someone to go out and have a beer with or go down to a, a restaurant with and have a coffee. And, but at the same time, there is also the isolation of someone who is in a crowd, like Picasso, who by all accounts never uh, was wanting in friends, followers, hangers-on, uh, interesting and interested people, uh, girlfriends, wives, mistresses, and yet he could still say these things in the back of his mind, uh, have these ideas in the back of his mind, that he too is basically alone for for having gone as far as he did. And also with the example of uh, Le Demoiselle d'Avignon um, being painted in 1907, not being sold for almost another 10 years, and, um, and so on, and not being recognized for what it is for uh, many years after that. Uh, that is also a lesson in what the current idea of fame would tell us, 
that the thing is sometimes not only not recognized, but not even seen or bought. Um, I believe in the rest of the book we, we learn that Picasso tried to show it to people, even friends who he thought would be sympathetic, and they just sort of had no idea what to make of it. Fame and renown are, uh, in the past tense, very often, they're things that happen later, not at the time. And uh, a friend of mine enjoyed the uh, enjoyed the image I gave last time, uh, talking about Whitman of Homer taking out the garbage. And here we have to imagine Picasso taking out the garbage, going to get something to eat, walking down the street, going to the bathroom, whatever you want to think of, with this huge painting in his head. And when it was done, uh, he went back to doing pretty much the same thing. And that is what people with minds like this simply have to do. And that is what Whitman had to do. I finished reading Paul Zweig's Walt Whitman, The Making of a Poet today. And tonight I will finish reading from the very, I'll finish recording bits from the very first part of it that take Whitman to the end of the 1840s until his 30th birthday. And we will see these same themes come up again and again throughout the rest of the book uh, with Whitman's early life. Now, Paul Zweig begins his book on Whitman with one of the few big events before the Civil War that we can really hang a story on. Uh, that's one thing about biographies of Whitman is that uh, there's not much to focus on unless you want to try and dig up the image of the writer. And digging up the image of the writer, even in a book as good as Paul Zweig's, is very, very difficult indeed. Um, to go back to Joyce for just one second, um, as I said, these episodes will be experiments in seeing what comes to mind as I'm doing this. Um, Joyce, sort of defensively late in his life, uh, told someone, I forget who it was, that Bach led a, a pretty uneventful life, and that was sort of his defense of having also lived an uneventful life. And yet, um, possibly because we have so many of Joyce's letters, and because we have the reminiscences of so many other writers, and that Joyce was simply just a different kind of writer than Whitman is, and yet we are lucky for having such a relatively uneventful life, such, a, such an astounding biography as the one published, uh, written by Richard Ellman, just called James Joyce. Um, I still don't think we have that for Whitman yet, and it may just be that we can't, that it's not possible to do a biography like that of Walt Whitman. But in any case, the, the, the one um, incident early in Whitman's life, just at the beginning of his truly creative period, that we can hang some drama on, is when he traveled with his brother from Brooklyn down to New Orleans when he was offered a job at one of the newspapers there. Uh, Zweig gives a very wonderful description of uh, 
of the journey down. And there is just, um, since there is so much that this book covers, I just wanted to read a, a small part from that time in New Orleans. After they arrive and uh, about Whitman's day-to-day -day life there, he was only there for a few months. And uh, as it will not be a surprise to anyone who looks into Whitman's biography in the 1840s, uh, he was fired and or quit uh, soon after arriving in the city. He was not apparently a, a good employee or uh, someone who was easy to work with. This is what Paul Zweig says about Whitman's day-to-day -day in New Orleans. On some days, Whitman strolled from his office on St. Charles Street to the Banks Arcade, a rendezvous for local journalists. Standing at the bar that stretched along one side of the arcade, he listened to planters and businessmen talk about city affairs, the peace treaty with uh, Mexico, I believe, the peace treaty. Across the floor of the arcade, he saw slave auctioneers sipping brandy and water while they sold off, sometimes for thousands of dollars, human beings who were obliged to open their mouths so that buyers could inspect their gums and teeth. Yet Whitman knew the terms of his employment and kept his peace about controversial matters. He never mentioned the slave trade during his stay in New Orleans. Turning to a less controversial subject, he wrote, a daring appreciation of a show of nude models performing at a local theater. They stood, he wrote, in, quote, graceful and beautiful groupings, most of them, after models in sculpture, end quote. Angered by the fuss made in some out-of-town newspapers, he added, quote, It is a sickly prudishness that bars all appreciation of the divine beauty evidenced in nature's cunningest work, the human frame, form, and face, end quote. Here was a safe controversy, and Whitman threw himself into it. And this is where Paul Zweig really has his insights. He says, Yet, within a half dozen years, the slave auction and the, quote, divine beauty, end quote, of the nude models would be conflated in a memorable passage of I Sing the Body Electric, which uh, I will be reading uh, for uh, an episode in the next few days. Let's see, next passage here. Here it says, uh, this is a, a passage of about 10 pages later. An old acquaintance remembered Whitman in his printing office and bookstore that he owned in 1849. And this is just a contemporary description of Whitman by someone who knew him. The, quote, the superficial opinion about him was that he was somewhat of an idler, a loafer, but not in a bad sense. He always earned his own living. I thought him a very natural person. He wore plain, cheap clothes, which were always particularly clean. He was quite gray at thirty. His singular coolness was an especial feature. He had a look of age in his youth, as he has now a look of youth in his age. 
and by this time he by this point he has returned to uh, returned to Brooklyn and Manhattan and there's this small passage about uh, what he was beginning to do at this time. In 1848 and 1849, Whitman was still very much the man his political friends knew. But now there was also a leather notebook with a pencil stuck through its loops, small enough to be carried in a pocket. The notebook spoke of other matters in a bold, hard-edged language. Here was no trace of politics, nor was there much that could be called personal. It is as if, in these notebooks, Whitman was experimenting with tone, addressing an audience of immortals instead of an audience of citizens. The notebook tells us that, appearances to the contrary, Whitman in 1848 and 1849 had entered a new phase. And I'll say uh, again, as I will remind in every episode, the dates to remember about Whitman are uh, born in 1819, so he's 30 years old now, and the first edition of Leaves of Grass, which is sort of where uh, Zweig's book, uh, Crescendos, is published in 1855. So that Whitman in 1848 and 1849 had entered a new phase. Not only was he the man his political friends knew, he was also a man of whom they had no idea. We must now begin to think of him as a paradox. On the one hand, a writer of limited originality, practiced in laying end-to-end -end expected phrases that reassure. On the other hand, a writer obsessed with originality, who had decided to reinvent the idiom of literature. There is an entry in one of his notebooks, quote, I cannot understand the mystery but I am always conscious of myself as two, as my soul and I, end quote. If there was ever a time of two-ness in Whitman's life, it was now. Both parts of himself were passionate and articulate, yet, as often with Whitman, they seemed not to know each other. About another ten pages on, there is simply another entry in Whitman's notebook that says, quote, Everything yet is made the subject of poetry. Narratives, descriptions, jokes, sermons, recipes, etc., etc. Which is basically, as Zwei uh, goes on to say, what Ezra Pound, uh, what Rilke, Eliot, William Carlos Williams and the modern poets all seem to agree on, the difference being Whitman lived and wrote uh, 50, 60, 70 years before them. And then again, we can think uh, to what I just read of Picasso, the isolation of being ahead of your time, even in something as simple as that. Take a drink here. A few pages later. During the late 1840s, Whitman compiled a folder of newspaper and magazine articles on health and physiology. And in 1849, 
the year Lorenzo Fowler drew up his chart of bumps, Whitman apparently planned to give a series of lectures on diet, exercise, and health. Um, just as an aside here, one of the passages that I won't be reading from here, because it is quite long, um, is the one where he goes and gets his uh, phrenological, if that's the word, his phrenological chart made, and the faith and insight that Whitman seemed to have uh, gained from it. Um, it is said that Whitman, it says later on in this book, actually, that Whitman carried around the letter, that the famous letter that Emerson sent to him about leaves of grass in his pocket all summer long after he got it. And uh, just to show the high and the low of Whitman, uh, it also says that he, uh, Zweig mentions that Whitman also carried around the chart of bumps with him all the time, too. Uh, Zweig goes on to say, uh, Whitman apparently planned to give a series of lectures on diet, exercise, and health. In the sense, the subject, this subject governed the themes of Whitman's life. His idea of the poet as the supremely healthy man, his fascination with hospitals and with the sick, leading to his service as a male nurse during the Civil War, and his buoyancy and courage during the last 20 years of his life when he was an invalid following the stroke he suffered in 1873. Um, having just finished reading the entirety of this book today, uh, I can see how Zweig is building this sort of as a subplot into the book of how uh, the image Whitman gives of himself as being healthy and manly and physical and all the rest, but how he only discovers that this probably isn't so, and that the real meaning of things it comes for him as well as for others when he goes and becomes a, a male nurse during the Civil War is quite striking and quite haunting, as is uh, a handful of passages that I won't be including here on um, the physical disabilities and mental disabilities of one of Whitman's brothers, uh, and the general health problems that surrounded Whitman's parents and his other brothers and sisters, especially uh, a sort of, uh, uh, what would you say, uh, a whiplash going the other way uh, to the other extreme for Whitman of imagining that he could be this supremely healthy person and that that would somehow make a difference, even though it seems not to have done. Oh, this is, this is very nice. Um, so in the fall of 1849, when he still has his, uh, when he get, when he has his notebooks, uh, sort of, uh, sketching out new ideas of poetry, he is also writing about his own boyhood. And this is actually a, I believe Zweig says this is a, a piece that is reworked from an earlier, this is a piece published later in his life that is reworked from something written in the late 1840s. And this is just him talking about uh, his boyhood and his childhood. 
Whitman says this, quote, Here and all along the island and its shores, he's talking about Long Island, Here and all along the island and its shores, I spent intervals many years, all seasons, sometimes riding, sometimes boating, but generally afoot. I was always then a good walker, absorbing fields, shores, marine incidents, characters, the baymen, farmers, pilots. Always liked the bare sea beach, south side, the soothing rustle of the waves and the saline smell. Boyhood's times, the clam digging barefoot and with trousers rolled up. Excuse me. Hauling down the creek, the perfume of the sedge meadows, the hay boat, and the chowder and fishing excursions, end quote, and it goes on and on. Whitman's childhood was so enmeshed in the scenes of the Long Island countryside that he sometimes felt as if he had, quote, incorporated them. Even the rolling line of his new poetry, he claimed, had been inspired by the, quote, soothing rustle of the surf on the beaches of Long Island. And of course, that also brings up his great sea poems um, and his water poems. Uh, Zweig then quotes a piece of his contemporary journalism, and well, the passage isn't isn't necessarily worth reading itself. Zweig's comment on it is worth reading. It says, just to show that uh, uh, you take Zweig's word for it, that uh, not only is this better journalism than any Whitman had yet written, but it shows him at the threshold of a new ambition to excel at doing what no important American writer had truly attempted, although Emerson expressed the idea when he wrote, quote, I embrace the common, I explore and sit at the feet of the familiar and the low. Emerson could never follow his own dictum, but Whitman did. He expanded downward. That's a wonderful phrase. Whitman expanded downward. He cast his remarkable eye upon the ordinary doings of ordinary men, endowing them with a vividness and a pungency that the, quote, feudal poets of the old world and the, quote, artificial poets of the new, still reserved for their memorable deeds of heroes. And here, I think the reason for not including the actual piece of Whitman's uh, journalism is because we can see uh, anyone who's read Whitman knows, uh, can already call up an image or a line or a catalog where Whitman is expanding downwards. And here, let's see, yes, here is a passage, here is a passage from his, um, from his journalism, which also, uh, uh, Zweig very, links up with his later poetry of silence and the evening very well. Uh, he says, um, Whitman wrote with a boyish glee that expands gently into one of those melodious silences that would soon be among his most attractive modes. This is something Whitman wrote, wrote in 1849. Quote, I made my bed in the furled sail, watching the stars as they twinkled and falling asleep so. 
a stately and solemn night, that to me, for I was awake much and saw the countless armies of heaven marching stilly in the space up there, marching stilly and slowly on, and others coming up out of the east to take their places. Not a sound, not an insect interrupted the exquisite silence, nothing but the ripple of the water against the sides of the vessel. An indescribable serenity pervaded my mind, a delicious abnegation of the ties of the body. I fancied myself leaping forward into the extent of the space, springing as it were from star to star. Thoughts of the boundless creation must have expanded my mind, for it certainly played the most unconscionable pranks from its tabernacle lying there in those of hempen duck. And as uh, Zweig says, this is no journalistic hack, but a genuine writer. Uh, if we compare these things, and, and uh, there are bits and pieces of it throughout uh, the previous hundred pages in Zweig's book, if we compare these pages to the quotations he gives from Whitman's earlier journalism, um, you could almost say uh, that what I just read here, we can start to hear Whitman as, <clears throat> excuse me, as we know him. And here is the last page and a half, two pages of the first part of Paul Zweig's book. Perhaps the most startling evidence that Whitman had begun to think as a poet comes in two letters written from New York. And letters, these are um, uh, letters he is writing from Long Island that are published uh, in the newspapers. Uh, written from New York in late November and December. Among Manhattan's most imposing structures in 1849, was the recently built Lower Croton Reservoir at 40th Street and 5th Avenue, where the New York Public Library now stands. The four-acre reservoir was surrounded by thick 45-foot battlements and topped by a promenade, offering a splendid view of the rivers and the crowded skyline of the city farther downtown. Here, one day in November 1849, Whitman started out on one of his journalistic rambles about town, quote, Of the latter part of an afternoon, it makes a delightful little jaunt to go out and see the sunset from the broad walk on the top of this reservoir. A hundred years hence, I often imagine, what an appearance that walk will present on a fine summer afternoon. You and I, reader, and quite all the people who are now alive, won't be much thought of then, but the world will be just as jolly, and the sun will shine just as bright, and the river is off there, the Hudson on one side, and the east on the other, will slap along their green waves precisely as now, and other eyes will look upon them about the same as we do. The walks on the battlements of the Croton Reservoir a hundred years hence, then these immense stretches of vacant ground below will be covered with houses. The paved streets will clatter with innumerable carts and resound to deafening cries. And the promenaders here will look down upon them, perhaps, and away uptown toward the quiet and more fashionable quarters 
and see great changes. Ages after ages these Croton works will last, for they are more substantial than the old Roman aqueducts, which were mostly built on the surface of the ground. And crowds of busy feet will patter over this flagging years hence, and here will be melancholy musings and popping the question, and perhaps bargains and sales, long, long after we of the present time are under the sod. End quote. In itself, Whitman's journalistic med meditation is not remarkable, Zweig says, although I seem to think it, it is. Uh, yet the reader will recognize the theme of one of his greatest poems, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, and here is just a piece of that poem. Others will enter the gates of the ferry and cross from shore to shore. Others will watch the run of the flood tide. Others will see the shipping of Manhattan north and west and the heights of Brooklyn to the south and east. Others will see the islands large and small. Fifty years hence, others will see them as they cross, the sun half an hour high. A hundred years hence, or ever so many hundreds years hence, others will see them, will enjoy the sunset, the pouring in of the flood tide, the falling back to the sea of the ebb tide." End quote. The difference between Whitman's newspaper stroll of 1849 and the poem published seven years later in the second edition of Leaves of Grass measures the distance he would travel in a few years. Here, at the center of his meditation, he, in the prose version, he placed the reservoir with its solid walls, its view over the distant rivers and the city. In 1856, in the poem, the scene would be the river itself, its flow and the flow of time. No dower monument can withstand it. No reservoir can safely distribute its waters. For this, something more spacious and permanent than a reservoir is required. Excuse me. Able to flow with the river, to merge with its sights and pleasures, the poet's expansive mind. Quoting from the poem again, It avails not time nor place, distance avails not. I am with you, you men and women of a generation, or ever so many generations hence. Whitman's homily on the impermanence of life would, by 1856, be internalized. The time-defeating monument would be the poet, the work that attests to its buoyancy upon the waters would be his poem. Even the poem's masterful parallelism is present in the 1849 article as a clumsy journalistic device. The theme would ripen for half a dozen years before taking its final shape, when it would draw upon yet another idea Whitman broached in the letter. On 23rd December, he described a second ramble about town, quote, Many books have been written to describe journeys between the old and new world, and what was done or seen therein and afterward. But we know of no work describing a voyage across the Fulton Ferry. End quote. And Zweig ends the first part of his book by saying, There can be no mistake. In the fall of 1849, Whitman's real work 
had begun. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.